James chapter 2, verses 8 through 13. We pick up, of course, where we left off this morning. James writes, If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law, according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. But whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he's become guilty of all. For he who said, Do not commit adultery, also said, Do not commit murder. But if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. May God add His blessing to the reading of His Word. Father, as we come this evening, and we look into Your Word, and we hear what James, our brother, has said to us. He's given us some responsibility toward others. I pray that we would see our responsibility and take it serious, and I pray that this, this message tonight would provoke change in the way that we behave toward others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As I read through this text this week, the word that kept coming to mind was responsibility, responsibility, responsibility. Now, I don't know what you think about when you hear the word responsibility. I don't know where your mind goes. Oftentimes, words have a way of, of triggering thought patterns for us. If somebody says a specific word, we have a tendency for a thought pattern to be triggered. In fact, even psychologists sometimes will say, I'm going to show you a picture and you say the first word that comes to mind, or I'm going to say a, a word and you say the first word that comes to mind. I don't know what comes to mind when you hear me use the word responsibility. Responsibility is a, is a pretty common word going about right now. Uh, the President of the United States has taken responsibility for the FEMA um, blunder in the New Orleans disaster, and now I've seen that the governor has taken responsibility, and I see a lot of people accepting responsibility. It's unusual because we have become progressively a nation that desires to find any loophole that we can to escape responsibility. It isn't anything new. It's hard to believe that 1980 was 25 years ago, as I pulled some of these statistics together, but as far as 25 years ago, this pattern that we see that is prevalent today began to show up. In 1980, in a Boston courtroom, Michael Tyndale was acquitted of flying illegal drugs in the United States. Tyndale's attorney argued that he was a victim of action addict syndrome, an emotional disorder that makes a person crave dangerous, thrilling situations. And so the jury found him not guilty of flying drugs into the United States. An Oregon man was tried for trying to kill his, ex, his ex-wife, and he was acquitted. He was acquitted on the grounds of depression suicide syndrome, whose victims deliberately commit poorly planned crimes with the unconscious goal of being shot to death by the police. And then there is one of my favorites, the Twinkie syndrome. Attorneys for Dan White, who murdered San Francisco Mayor George Mascone, blamed the crime on emotional stress linked to White's junk food addict and his binges. White was acquitted of murder and convicted on a lesser charge of manslaughter. Nowadays, nobody is at fault for anything. We're all just a nation of victims. But you know what? That's not going to fly with God. God is not going to hear that you became a grown man who couldn't commit in marriage because your father was not committed. 
God is not going to accept that you were a gossip because others gossiped. God is not going to accept that you hated because others hated. God is not going to accept that you were morally promiscuous because that was just your fallen nature. Responsibility is what rings from this passage. Responsibility. The aim of this text is for us to see how we are to live an acceptable, responsible life before God. And James does this by offering us three absolute responsibilities. Look in the text with me again, and you'll see first in the first few verses the responsibility that we have to our neighbor. Notice that he says, If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's fulfilling the royal law. Jesus said that the greatest commandment is that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and that you love your neighbor as yourself. He summed up all the Ten Commandments in two commandments. Love God and love your neighbor. We have an absolute responsibility to love our neighbor. Now, before I discuss what this means to love our neighbor, who is our neighbor, what are we to do, how are we to do it, let me make sure that there's no misunderstanding about close friendships in the church. There are some people that have misunderstood these kinds of commands to mean that no one is to have any special endeared friendships in the church. We're supposed to all love one another equally on equal grounds and relate to one another equally on equal grounds. Well, if you think like that, let me be the first to say to you that you're ludicrous in your thinking. It doesn't work that way. It's never worked that way. Who are you kidding? It's never worked that way. It didn't work that way with Jesus. He had 120 disciples that followed him consistently, but he had 12 that were his known disciples. And of those 12, he had three that were his inner core. And of those three, one, only one of them, defines himself as the apostle whom Jesus loved. He loved Peter, and he loved James, and he loved and he loved Bartholomew, and he loved Thomas, and he loved Matthew, but he had a special relationship with John. And he had a special relationship with Peter and James and John. And he had a special relationship with the twelve, and the hundred and twenty, and so forth. This, this idea of loving your neighbor as yourself is not an admonition that says that you can't have any close internal friendships. That's not at all what it's saying. What he is saying is that we are not to love our in our internal core group at the exclusion of others. That's what he's saying. We're to love, we're to have a basic love for humanity as a whole. That's what he's saying. We're not to show favoritism. We're not to be exclusive in our behavior. We're not to push others out of the circle. That's what we're not to do. We're not to be the kind of person that has its bless us for no more mentality. We have our close friendships, but we interact with others in a loving Christian manner. So let's move into our first responsibility to our neighbor. The first question we have to answer is the same question that was asked of Jesus where he told the story of the Good Samaritan. Who is your neighbor? Who is your neighbor? I think you'll be surprised at how I'm going to define it, but I think that I have a biblical definition. Your neighbor is the person who God brings across your path. Your neighbor are the people who live on your street. Your neighbor are the people who live in your apartment building. It's the boys and girls that are in your class, in school, or are taking courses with you at the university. 
the men and women in your office, the persons that you do business with, the postman, the checkout girl, the, the hairdresser, the filling station staff, the banker, the paper boy, all of these people that we meet each and every day and we have some personal contact with, these are our neighbor. Your neighbor may have different religious views than you. Does that give you the right to not love them? Absolutely not. I mean, listen, just contemplate the ideology of the story of the Good Samaritan. They were of different religious views. They were of different ethnic, ethnic backgrounds. They had differing beliefs. They were not by nature, if I can use that terminology, kinsmen. And yet Jesus poignantly tells the story of the good Samaritan. It should have been the good Jew. They were the ones that had the right view of God. They were the ones that had been blessed by God. But it wasn't. It was the good Samaritan. Your neighbor may not have the same religious views as you. He may not have any religion at all. But that does not excuse you from loving your neighbor. Your neighbor may be your competition for that one promotion at work. You don't have to sabotage them and use it as an excuse why I've got to provide for my family. Don't you know that God is providentially ruling this universe and if He wants you to have the promotion and you're worthy of the promotion, you'll get the promotion. And if He doesn't, you won't. You're to love your neighbor as yourself. It may be that there's one opening for the varsity volleyball team. One opening for the quarterback. One opening for that starting track position. You're to love that person who is your closest competition because they are your neighbor. Now that you know who your neighbor is, what is it that you are to do to your neighbor? Well, you're to love your neighbor. You say, but I have the neighbors from hell. Well, that's where all of our neighbors will be if we don't love them and reach them with the gospel. Listen, it's easy to judge your neighbor. Notice that James does not tell us to simply not hate our neighbor. I can hear somebody saying, listen, I don't love my neighbor, but I don't hate him either. That's not the standard. We're not told to not hate our neighbor. Great, you don't hate your neighbor. The pagans can live like that. The Bible says that we're to love our neighbor. Now, what does this neighborly love look like? What kind of love is it that we're to express to our neighbor? Well, Paul gives a very clear definition in 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 7. He says, love is patient. Love is kind. It's not jealous. Love does not brag, it's not arrogant, it does not act unbecomingly, it does not seek its own, it is not provoked, it does not take into account a wrong suffered, it does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. It bears all things, it believes all things, it hopes all things, it endures all things. Now, I like to point out the one thing that he says there where he says love believes all things. That doesn't mean that you're to be some mindless, gullible nerd. It means that you are to be hopeful in humanity. It means that if somebody says to you, I didn't do this, or if somebody says to you, I did do this, or if somebody gives an answer to a question that you've asked, unless you have evidence to present before them to say, you're lying. The Christian says, I'm going to hope in your character that you're telling the truth, and you believe all things. You hope for them. You want the truth to be there. You want them to be an honest person. We have a tendency to become somewhat cynical the longer that we live. The more dealings that we have with people. There are fewer people that I've ever met in my life that are harder and harsher than police officers. But think about it. Who do the police officers deal with day in and day out? 
Nobody calls the police and says, send a police officer, we're having a really good time and we want him to have some punch and cake. Nobody calls 911 and says, send over the police, my marriage is happy and I want him to see it. Nobody does that. No one calls 911 and says, send all the squad cars, my car's in the garage, it's not been stolen. We call the police and we say, send the police, my husband is beating me. Send the police, my neighbor's playing their music too loud. Send the police, they're dealing drugs in the front street. And they deal with the dregs of our society. And if they don't have a constant influx of godly Christian people in the Word of God flowing through their slow, they become jaded and cynical. But you know what? You can become just as jaded and cynical if you don't have fresh water flowing into your cistern as well. You can become the kind of person that believes that everyone just lets you down. Everyone lies. Nobody tells the truth anymore. Nobody keeps their promises. That's not true. That's not true. I'm sorry for the dealings that you've had with your neighbor, but the Bible says that if you have Christ who has forgiven you, how many times have you disappointed Christ? How many times have you transgressed the law of liberty? How many times have you gone before God and said, Lord, forgive me, forgive me, forgive me? And we don't hear him come back and say, nope, had enough. You've had your 40, you've had your... You've had your 70 times 7. 490, that's it, you're out. The Bible says if you confess your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. But see, there's a condition there, isn't there? If you confess your sin. It's not just assumed. It's based upon confession. We are to love our neighbor. If our neighbor sins against us and they repent, then we are to forgive them and love them in the same manner in which we are forgiven and loved. That leads to another question. How am I to love my neighbor? By what standard? The law is, the absolute standard is that you are to love your neighbor. But by what standard? Again, the answer comes from verse 8. Look again in verse 8. If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor. How? As yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. No one loves themselves too little, do they? Nobody loves themselves too little. Nobody has to be told, oh, love yourself a little. I was getting to speak to a man here in town that works at Taco Bell. He's um, mentally handicapped. He was riding his bicycle up the street. And I was going for a jog. You know, and my idea when you go for a jog, you go for a jog. And my wife and dog go with me. But what does my wife see? A yard sale. What do we do? We stop to shop. I go for a jog. She goes to the yard sale. Pray for me. I'm not loving her the way that I should. I'm sitting on the grass, my dog and I wondering, when are we going to go back to jogging? This young man rides up on his bicycle. We began to talk to one another. It was just this past week. And he starts talking to me about working at Taco Bell and how people are mean to him. And then he said something that I thought was pretty interesting. He said, you know, lots of people are mean to me. I've been busted in the mouth a lot. He said, but when someone talks ugly to me, I say to them, you must not love yourself very much. That's pretty good, isn't it? That's what he said. He said, I say to them, you must not love yourself very much. Because if you loved yourself a little bit more, you wouldn't hate me so much. That's pretty good, isn't it? I bet he didn't think that up on his own. I bet he found that in the Bible. Because that's exactly what he said to me. That's what the Bible says. The Bible says that you're to love your neighbor as you love yourself. So if somebody doesn't love me, I figure they just don't love themselves very much either. That's right. Not too many of us love ourselves too little. Most of us could do a little bit less self-love. When you love your neighbor as yourself, 
His concerns become your concerns. His pain becomes your pain. His inconvenience becomes your inconvenience. When was the last time you were inconvenienced for your neighbor? When was the last time you stopped what you were doing for somebody else? When was the last time you thought of others and put them in front of you? Alec Moyers asks this question. How do we love ourselves? Never it is to be hoped with an emotional thrill. Rarely as a matter of fact with much sense of satisfaction, mostly with pretty wholesale disapproval, often with complete loathing, but always with concern, care, and attention. When we catch sight of our faces in the mirror first thing in the morning, the word, uh, comes spontaneously to the lips. Yet at once we take our revolting face to the bathroom, we wash it, intend it, and make it permissible as nature will allow. And so it goes on through the day. Loving ourselves means providing loving care and attention. This is the model on which we are to base our relationship to all whom we owe neighborly duty. Everything conspires today to define love primarily in emotional terms. Scripturally, love is to be defined in the caring terms for love that is owed to our neighbor is the love we expand on ourselves. We are to care for our neighbor. So our first absolute responsibility is to love our neighbor as ourself. That's what James tells us in verses 8 and 9. In verses 10 and 11, he gives us our second responsibility. We have a responsibility to the law of God. Yes, we are redeemed by grace. Yes, we lived under the New Testament. But make no mistake about it, we still have a responsibility to the law. It is not to be accepted by God, but it is because it is God's law that those who have been accepted by Him live by. Look at verses 10 and 11. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he's become guilty of all. Then he gives us an example. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. James moves carefully from limited love to limited obedience. We have a tendency to pick and choose who we want to love. Let me tell you something. We don't all like everybody the same way, but we are to love them, or to care for them, or to be concerned about them. We don't all like all of the Scriptures the same way. There are some things in Scripture that are tough. They're hard. Listen, Jesus said, love your enemy." Pray for those who despitefully use you. Despitefully use you. Have you ever been despitefully used? You know what it means to be despitefully used? Somebody intentionally gets close to you purely for selfish purposes, and once they get what they want, they wash their hands of you like gardening dirt in the evening when you go in for supper. Despitefully use you. Jesus doesn't say, now that's a person you can hate. He says, pray for them. Love your enemy. Your enemy's thirsty, give them a drink of water. Listen, that's tough stuff. It'd be nice if what the Bible said was this. Everybody who loves God, you ought to love. And everybody who doesn't love God, you don't got to give two cents about them. Share the gospel with them and they reject it. Tell them, go to hell then. That's what the Bible says. The Bible says that we are to be known by the way that we love one another. Love one another as I have loved you, so you are to love one another. The world will know you are of me by the way that you love one another. Jesus says over and over and over how we are to care for one another. Sometimes we're not very caring, are we? Sometimes we're not very obedient either. 
There are a number of people in the church today that believe that they can come to the Bible like they go to Morrison's Cafeteria or the MCL. Oh, I like that, so I'll have a little of that. I don't like that, so I'll pass. It doesn't work that way. That's what James is pointing out. You can't just say, well, I've not killed anybody, so I haven't broken the law. No, you haven't killed anybody, but you're an adulterer. You've broken the law. And if you've broken one piece of the law, you've broken all of the law. We come back to the illustration that I've used time and time again. The Bible is not a big window with little panes, and we break a little pane here and break a little pane there. It's one window. If it's broke, it's broke. That's what James says. You've broken the whole law. If you transgressed in one area, you've transgressed in all. Throughout history, there have been those that have liked to keep certain laws at the rejection of others. The high priest Annas and Caiaphas had one pet commandment, the third commandment. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. That's what they charged Jesus with. They were determined to nail Jesus to the cross because they said that He had blasphemed the name of God. Isn't it interesting that they wanted to kill Jesus because they said that He violated the third commandment? Do you ever just scratch your head about that? You pick and choose the law. You might find a primitive community where committing adultery is absolutely wrong because then a wife could be bearing someone else's child. But in that community, killing and eating your enemy is not considered wrong. If you've ever seen the movie Etau um, of, the, of the Papua New Guinea, there's been a couple of missions movies that I've seen where missionaries have gone in and they've had some really peculiar situations to deal with. I saw one in college where uh, some Southern Baptist missionaries went to a tribe, and that is exactly what the issue was in the tribe. There was no, there was no immorality. There was no adultery. It was absolutely unheard of. However, they were cannibals. They didn't think twice about killing their enemies and cooking them up and eating them. And so, what do you think the missionary began with when he began telling the gospel with them? He began with the Ten Commandments. So James's words would be right up to date for them. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. For if you do commit adultery, but do, but if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you become a lawbreaker. Jim Elliott. Many of you have heard of Jim Elliott, Elizabeth Elliott's husband. He was a missionary to the Indians of North America. He began to translate the scriptures into their language. And he didn't begin with John 3.16. He began with the Ten Commandments. And this was also the theme of his first sermon. He didn't think that they could be saved by the law of God. That thought never entered his mind. But the commandment showed these people their guilt before God and prepared their hearts for the gospel to save them of their transgression. That's why I said when I preached my series of sermons on justification that you always begin with sin. You begin by showing mankind their plight, their destitute, how they've transgressed against a holy God. The gospel doesn't look beautiful until you see your desperate condition. I love the story of John G. Patton, the missionary to the New Hebrides Islands in the South Sea just off of Australia. He also first taught the commandments to the islanders because they would never have become interested in the relationship with the Redeemer until they had seen the terrible breach in the relationship to the Creator. I love the story of John G. Patton when he's about to go to the New Hebrides Islands. A man says, but John, you'll be eaten by the cannibals. And he says, oh, you're a man of quite some age. Soon you shall die and be eaten by the worms. It matters not to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or worms. What a great attitude. The good news is only good news to those who've heard the bad news. Our Lord said, but go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I've not come to call the righteous, but what? 
sinners. We must show them that they're sinners. The hope of the gospel is birthed out of the despair of the broken law, and God has not abolished the law. That's what James is saying. God has not abolished the law. Jesus said, I did not come to do away with the law, but to fulfill it. So we have a responsibility to our neighbor. We have a responsibility to the law. Let me tell you what else we have a responsibility to. The Bible tells us in verses 12 and 13 that we have a responsibility to live in light of the coming judgment. We have a responsibility to live in, in light of the coming judgment. Look at verses 12 and 13. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. You're going to be judged, says James. In Scripture, these three things always hang together. The law of God, the cross of Christ, and the righteous judgment of the Almighty God. These three things always hang together. The law of God, the cross of Christ, and the righteous judgment of Almighty God. The late Ernie Reisinger had a constant message, was always preaching these three things. He would say, do away with the law of God and there's no sin because sin is the transgression of the law. 1 John 3, 4 reads, everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. No law, no sin. If there's no sin, we need no Christ or Savior. And then he would preach this, without the work of Christ on the cross, there is no solution for sin. In many respects, one of the most wonderful descriptions of the work of Christ on the cross is found in Isaiah 42, 22. One, which tells us He will magnify the law and make it honorable. The cross without the law is a jigsaw with the key piece missing. Then He would preach this, If there is no righteous judgment by Almighty God, then who cares about sin? And who cares about the cross? The cross is made a beautiful object in light of the coming judgment for those that have put their faith and trust in the work of Christ on the cross. Otherwise, if there is no coming judgment of our soul, if there is no balancing of the scale, if there is no day in which we stand before God, then who cares about the cross? As Paul would say, if there is no resurrection, then let's eat and drink and be merry. For today we live and tomorrow we die. But you know what? There is going to be a judgment one day. There is really going to be a judgment one day. Our deeds and words, our thoughts and intentions are going to be weighed by Jesus. Does that terrify you? It terrifies me. I know that my sin was judged in Christ on Calvary. But I also know that somehow in some way there's going to be a judgment. Jesus said that that which was whispered in secret will be broadcast in public. And even the intentions of our hearts will be known. What does the law say? The law says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Hosea 6.6. And Jesus quoted it in Matthew 9.13. Do you see the picture? A man who never misses the daily sacrifice in the temple. But if you were a day late in repaying him a shekel into prison, he would have you thrown. You see that? Notice what he says. Judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. You know what he's saying here? Be careful about standing in the congregation and quoting, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive me my trespasses, but I will not forgive others theirs. Be careful. 
Because if you're the person that refuses to forgive and show mercy to those that sin, that's exactly the way you should quote the model prayer. Forgive me, God, but I will refuse to forgive them. We who are in Christ and who have been forgiven much can gladly say, God, forgive me my trespasses as I forgive those who have trespassed against me. God's royal law of freedom says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. It warns, judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who's not been merciful. You know what? I bet you that there are some people in the congregation this evening who are harboring ill feelings. And I want to ask you, is it worth it? Is it worth it? Is it worth the missed sleep? Is it worth, is it worth the burden that you're carrying? When the Bible says if you confess your sin, you'll be faith, He's faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. When Jesus says in Matthew 18, 15, if your brother sins against you, go and rebuke your brother in private. And if he repents, you've won your brother and you refuse to do that. Sometimes I believe that we do not go and confront anyone because we would rather be bitter and angry than get to the bottom of something, find the truth and have peace. Some people just thrive on conflict. If they can't have conflict, then they thrive on making conflict. That's not the way that we're supposed to be. And if we live with eternity in mind, we won't be that way. Judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Judgment without mercy is not the same as merciless judgment. If we fail to show mercy, we ourselves have never known the wonder of divine mercy. We might have made it a religion sacrifice every day of our lives, but we've been strangers to God's genuine mercy. We show this by what we are demanding from fellow sinners. Be careful about what you demand of others. We could never have prayed the Lord's Prayer and meant it if what we demand of others is greater than what God demands of us. God's law will take an absolute, just, and equitable course. We have never shown mercy to others. Then get ready. You will not receive mercy from God. That's what James says. These are absolute responsibilities that we have. We have a responsibility to love our neighbor as ourselves. We have a responsibility to the law of God. And we have a responsibility to forgive, to show mercy. We have these responsibilities. They're non-negotiable. There are no loopholes in God's great courtroom. There is no slick lawyer. Johnny Cochran will not be in heaven to work you out of your trouble. God's work, I don't know whether he'll be in heaven or not anyway, but if he is, he won't be there to work you out of your trouble. Mercy triumphs over judgment, Christ James. He's speaking of the heart of God. He's speaking of Calvary. There is more godlike act that God, there's no more godlike act that God could perform in you than forgiveness. Judgment was fully done on Christ at Calvary for your sin and for the sin of the person whom you're harboring your anger at. All our sins were laid on the Lamb of God. So God is just in pardoning us. Mercy triumphs over judgment. That's what James says. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Now listen, I don't know what your struggle is. Every time I think that I know and I begin to guess or I speak to someone, I'm astonished to find that I'm wrong. Oftentimes it's far greater or sometimes it's far less. I don't know what your struggle is, but I know this. This is what the Word of God says. It says... Judgment will be merciless to the one who's shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. If you need to ask for the mercy of another 
or you need to give mercy to someone who's asked, then don't delay. Do it today. In the words of Jesus, go and do likewise.